0: Okay, so a week ago when I saw most of you last, uh I had two kids. <laughs> and so much has changed <laughs> in the past 6 days. So, uh for those of you who who have been following along on Facebook or Instagram and if you don't, then that's fine. There's no really good reason for you to have been in the first place. But if you if you have uh then then you probably have seen uh we uh we got a call on Monday that uh there there was a child that was ready for us to adopt and this is something if you've uh if you've been around for a while and you've known um my wife caroline and me this is something we've been going through for about two years we've been trying to sort of move towards this and there's been a lot of starting and stopping and uh some of you have been part of other cookouts or garage sales or everybody okay <laughs> and uh and so so it's, it's been a long process, and so for those of you who have been with us this whole time and, and sort of been uh, a, a part of like, the support team and encouraging us, thank you so much for that. And um, if you got a chance to meet our new son, Abel, uh, then, then you know what, what a joy he is already. And if you haven't, because I mean, the number one question I've gotten today is, where's the baby? So uh, And, and he's, he's here. So um, if you haven't gotten a chance to, uh, to see him, you'll, please feel free. I say to everyone, so because I know you. We're, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to. If, if there were like thousands of us here, I would not say that, obviously. <laughs> but, um, but again, I mean, this, is, this has been a, a really great church to be a part of in the midst of all this process. And so, thank you guys so much for for all of that. Now that said, when you are when you are in this process for as long as we are and you're sort of living your life and someone just calls you on a certain like a Monday or a Tuesday and says, this is happening. You don't necessarily have time to just like set up a whole like maternity paternity situation where you can just stop your life. You kind of you're living your life and someone basically tosses you a baby and says, enjoy. And uh, and so here I am. I'm, I'm here to preach a sermon. And uh, this is, i am no kidding, this is probably the least well-thought-out sermon I will have ever preached in my life. So thanks for being here for that. And, uh, I, I, again, I, I, if this, this were a big church of, like, multiple services and thousands of people, I would have done anything I could to, like, get out of this. But because we're... <laughs> But because you're you, and um, and we're all we're all family, then uh, I, 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 I we figured basically like we're going to be here anyway, and I've got this thing written, and like we're, we got we got like a couple of years or something like to, to get through with this book of Revelation. We can't just stop whenever we want, so the train has to keep rolling. So, um, if this seems disjointed or not that well thought out, sorry. Uh I will we'll will try again next week and I'll be hopefully my brain will have caught up with my life by that point. So uh I feel like the only appropriate way to to continue at this point is to pray and then and then we'll we'll get into all of that. So let me pray for us and we'll we'll get going. God, thank you. Um thank you for this this church and this group of people who are have been such an encouragement to to me and to my family. And uh for those of us in the room who brought something in that we are that you are they're celebrating we celebrate with them for those who brought something in that is painful we grieve that with them and so for those of us who are at any point on our journey we uh, we pray that you would meet us there and that we would find some sort of hope or joy or comfort wherever we are and in the next few minutes may our minds and our hearts be opened to whatever it is that you have to say to us in the name of jesus we pray amen all right i want to invite you if you have a bible to turn to the book of revelation chapter four so last week Oh, I guess, first of all, we've been in this series for, we're like in week 10 of the series. And what we've been doing with this whole series is we've been sort of exploring, okay, before the book of Revelation became the thing that people used to, uh, as source material for writing books that people buy in airports or for, uh, for, for the thing that you read right before you build a doomsday bunker. Like, before all of those things, initially, this, was, this book was a letter that was written to seven different churches in ancient Turkey. And the whole point of the book was to breathe some sort of new word of hope into a community of people who felt like basically all of the joy and the hope and the the purpose of life had sort of run out on them. And all they felt was pain and depression and fear from the Roman Empire and from Caesar. And so if you were here last week, we talked about how basically uh, Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 are this massive subversive commentary on... on on essentially the power of caesar and how the whole thing or domitian who was the caesar at the time that this was written and so the whole thing is like this massive commentary about like power is not what you think it is and like like who you believe to be in the center of all things isn't necessarily there and so what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to like remain in these two chapters because what we did last week was we took this big sweeping overview of what did the world look like at the time and so now we're going to stay in that place but we're going to zoom in on some of the very specific Specific images in, in these in this whole in these two chapters because these two chapters it 's really interesting they paint a picture that is pretty like big and crazy and, and difficult to understand. We have to remember this is a writer who is trying to put words to something that cannot be described. And so a lot of times when you need something that cannot be described, you don't go looking for like a historian or a statistician, you go looking for a poet. Because quite often the poet gets at things that someone who is just recapping like actual like bullet for bullet facts can never get to. And so what we're finding here is we're finding that this imagery gets at something that is way bigger than anything that can be described. And you need for those moments, you need a poet. And so anytime you get it like language and you think like okay this is blowing my mind it's because he, yeah it's, it's supposed to be blowing your mind because the poet is trying to communicate something that is way beyond where we are or what it is that we can fully like feel and say and understand does that make sense so so that's kind of what we're going at so what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks is we're going to stay in these two chapters and we're going to ask okay when we look at this scene of what is like a throne a throne room essentially what do we see and what does this have to do with all the other stuff that's going on not just in the world at the time but in our lives now so that's that's what's going on here so we're looking at revelation chapter 4 uh, we'll just start in verse one. It says, by the way, if you if you have a if you don't have a Bible, you can find all of the passages on the back of your bulletin. So, um, so we'll just start in verse one. It says, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, "Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this." So, the presence of a trumpet, like the idea of the voice that sounds like a trumpet, that's announcing something. In this time and place, a trumpet was a way that you would announce like something, some big important arrival of someone significant like someone blows a trumpet and caesar comes to town like like the the blowing of a trumpet or the sound of a trumpet is the indication that something really significant and important something powerful is happening here so in verse 2 it says, At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven, and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And last week, if you we were here, we talked about, okay, what's the significance of the imagery of the, ro- the white robes and the golden crowns? We talked about how this is a whole, all this is a subversive move against the power of Caesar. And so in verse five, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing these were the seven spirits of god also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and back and now poetically the four living creatures represent all of like the entire created order this is basically a way of saying like everything in this image represents all creation and so the idea is you have the, the entire in in this poetic image you have the entire created order all gathered in one place and so then if you, um, if you jump – so essentially what, what the writer is trying to say is the whole thing, what, what we're seeing here, it's way, way bigger than you can possibly imagine. And there are no words that fully get at what is being described here. And so now we jump over into chapter 5. Verse 11, so it's still we're still in the same place, and he's continuing to sort of describe what's going on. So in verse 11, it says, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and and the living creatures and the elders, in a loud voice, were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven And on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures, in other words, all of creation, said amen and the elders fell down and worship, and by the way, this word "amen" here in the word in it's a transliteration of a Hebrew word, which is "amen," which literally means truth. And so, essentially, what's being said is like whatever is happening here, it is the like embodiment of something that is like fundamentally true about the reality of all things. So again, painting a very very big sort of picture. So what we have, we have an image of um, of a space. And in the in the center of the space, there is a chair or a throne. This that's a chair. It's not like a backwards H or like the Hulu logo. Or it's a it's a chair. So so in the center of the space, you have this chair, and then you have all of creation, the entire created order, gathered in concentric circles surrounding the space and so essentially what's being said here is there is a center to all reality there is a center to the known universe or to, to the entire created order and in the, in the center of the created universe there is one who sits on the throne we talked last week about how the subversive language of the whole book is okay so there is this throne that exists at the center of all things and caesar isn't on the throne however i would argue that the message beyond that is and neither are you and so, and in fact, one of the things we find is that all of the living creatures, all of the created order, all, all things are facing inward. And so you have the center, and everything faces towards the center. Everything is oriented towards the center of all reality, the one who sits on the throne. And so in other words not only is there one who sits in the center of all things, but all things understand their place in, in, within the construct of the system. So all of creation, the entire created order, understands how it exists and why it exists within that structure. If that may, I realize I'm using very, very big language. Essentially what's being said is everything understands where it belongs and what its place in, in the larger story is. I would argue that the act of worship is the act of accepting and and embodying your place in the story that god is telling and essentially what the writer is saying is all of creation when everything is as god created it to be all of creation understands that it is not at the center of the universe so like there's one layer of this that that essentially continues to insist that caesar does not sit at the center of the universe and there's another layer that continues to insist and neither do you so there is at one level, this is very, very good news, but at another level, it's very jarring. This is this is something. This is one of those kinds of ideas that you really want everybody else to sort of embody or to, to, to internalize, but you don't think you need to, and so everybody listening to this is going to be like, I have a friend who could really learn that they are not the center of the universe. Nobody nobody sees themselves as the one who struggles with this, and so I, I would argue that one of the things that the image of the throne room and the image of what does it look like when things are as God created them to be? be i would argue that one of the things we find is that you and i are not at the center of the universe there is some larger thing going on and one of the things that revelation continues to orient us towards is there is a there's something way way bigger and it's bigger not not only does, does it mean that caesar is not lord it also means neither are you and you don't sit on the throne and i would i would argue that a lot of the things that we struggle with come back around to the idea of maybe you've been trying to sit in a chair that you don't belong in And maybe a lot of our struggles as human beings comes down to, am I trying to control something or am I trying to receive something or am I trying to be at the center of something that I, and I'm trying to sit in a chair that isn't mine. And so the whole thing kind of reminds us, where do we exist within this larger story that God is telling? And am I trying to sit in someone else's chair? And so, um, this passage confronts the the ways, all the ways that we make life about us. And and again, I would argue that one of the dominant questions, if we're really looking for where is our place in the story, one of the dominant questions is, in what ways do I try and sit in a chair that isn't mine? And uh, in fact, we're gonna we're gonna look at a couple of other pictures. How, basically, here's here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at a couple of other pictures that we find in the scriptures. We're gonna begin asking some questions about where do I find my, myself within this, and then we're gonna take communion as a way of reminding ourselves, oh, there is a larger center to this, and it isn't me. And so, uh, first, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, chapter four. By the way. If you're, if you're listening to this Revelation series and you're thinking, yeah, the book of Revelation is pretty weird. I think I could be comfortable with weirder. Go read the book of Daniel. Like, because if there's any book in the Bible that's weirder than Revelation, it's the book of Daniel. And so what we find within the book of Daniel is we have at one point you have this king. And the king's name is Nebuchadnezzar. And he's the king of this, uh, of this empire known as Babylon. And one of the things that Babylon had become known for was conquering other territories. So it's basically Rome before Rome was. And so one of the things that Babylon had done is they had conquered... Um, the the territory of israel and so you have this book of daniel is being written by people who or by someone who has been essentially kidnapped from his own home territory and taken into this other place because the whole point like this this king's whole dream is to build his empire bigger and bigger and bigger and at a certain point this individual daniel is speaking to the king and he begins to tell him like this whole idea this whole thing that you're doing where like your whole empire just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger it's not like, like you're going to end up being really, really disappointed with how this works out for you. And so in chapter four, verse 25, it says, if I can find it, it says, okay, this is Daniel speaking to the king. And he says, in, in the, basically as if speaking on behalf of God. And he says, you king will be driven away from the people and you will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass I'm sorry, seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. In other words, you think you have all this power, but it turns out the only reason you have any power at all is because someone else has given you power. And so in verse 26, it says, The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to—I love that he like throws in like the little like nod to royalty— Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Which, by the way, if he's the king, who's oppressing them? He is. So it's not just like be nice to people who are having a hard time. It's like acknowledge you are the reason they're having a hard time. You You are the oppressor. And then it says, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. Which sounds like a pretty light, like, listen, there's a way to make this way better for you. And then in verse 28, it says... All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, in other words, like all the things, like all the bad stuff that was predicted, all of it began to unfold. And then in verse 29, it says, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? This, so he's looking around and he's like, look, look at all the great stuff that I've built. This is... I mean, imagine there's someone who has an unbelievable amount of wealth. And then that person looks around at all the things that he has, and he asks, I wonder if I could put my name on all those buildings. Like, that's something we would never see in our world. I'm just saying, like, that might be... I thought that was funnier. Sorry. I <laughs> <laughs> guess we've got a tough crowd. So, all right. See, that's the thing about, like, not being that super prepared. Like, sometimes you have a joke in your head, and like, that's funny. And then you say it, and you're like, nope. <laughs> Turns out it wasn't. So, so you have this person who they they this person has has surveyed all he has and his response to this is look at how great I am. And so what we find is you have a person who has put himself at the center of all things. And essentially this is an indictment of what does it look like when all of reality becomes about like how much bigger can I make my stuff and how much more like how many things can I put my fingerprints on and how much can I control all things. And so it's like this exhausting attempt to make things bigger and better and more. Like, whatever it is that I have, how can I make it bigger and better and more? There was this documentary that came out uh, several years ago. If you haven't seen it, I, I love this documentary, but it's, uh, the name of it is The Queen of Versailles. Has anybody, anybody seen that? Like, last, last service, there was, like, one person who, like, watches all documentaries. But anyway, um, the, the idea behind this, this documentary is fascinating. So back in the mid-2000s, there was this family, this real estate mogul and his wife, and they decided, we will build the largest single-family resident in the United States. And we're, we're going to do it in Orlando, Florida, because where else would you do that? And so they, they, they set out to build, like, literally the largest single-family res, single residence in the entire United States. And so the documentarian found out about the, the building project, and she, she said, I have to go and document this, because this is fascinating. And so she went, and she, so the initial purpose of the documentary was, I'm going to see what it's like when someone is trying to build something this big, just for themselves. And so what ended up happening in the middle of the filming of the documentary while they're building the house is (laughs) like if you were alive in 2008 you know like if you are a real estate mogul then you're gonna like 2008 was a rough year for you and so all of a sudden like the bottom begins to fall out on all this guy's investments and all of his like holdings and like what became what what started out as like this massive like monument to this family's wealth became like this massive like noose around their neck and so they had to end up um, they, so they essentially became what's known as house poor. And so they, they ended up having to sort of live in the middle of like this unfinished like, thing that was sort of a monument to something that they were no longer able to do. And, and so the documentary is really, really interesting because it asks the question, what happens when you begin building an empire and you run out of resources before the empire is complete? And so uh, – and you sort of see like how each of them begins to deal with – this is what life is like when the whole thing was once about, like, how do I put my name on as many things as I can and how many make it as big, bigger and bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, you can't do that anymore. And what does that say? Like, what what kinds of things does that confront within you? Like, it becomes a really profound documentary. And um, now, <laughs> I will say, after the after the documentary was released, apparently the guy's business, like, like rebounded and they were able to finish the house and now currently live in it. So maybe not lesson learned. So but um, but they were but at the very least they made an interesting sort of like it made it, it made it an interesting movie, and and so but, and, and I watched it with somebody, and the person I watched it with had a really like negative reaction to it because he just like he had a hard time with like people who would like live with that much excess and that, that much wealth. Like there's a scene where they, they like open their garage and it's like filled, they have, like five kids and like the whole garage is like, filled with bicycles. Like there's like, maybe like almost a hundred bicycles in this in this house, and they're all kid bicycles. And and my friend was pointing out like all that like like, like what, what's the point of that? And I said I don't know. Do you have a storage unit? Like, like, how many of us we have more than we need? How many of us? And I mean, I'm as guilty. If you saw my garage, you would judge me just as much, harshly as like this, this family's ever been judged. But, um, but, but what's what's happening is. If you watch this documentary and you begin asking, like, how, how is this like us? And how, how is it that we become this interested in bigger and better and more? And what does that cost us in the process? Because what that does is it moves us to a, to a chair that perhaps we don't belong in. Do you – have you ever had a friend who every year they get a new car? And there's part of you that thinks, I need a new car every year. Because I can't hang out with that person in this car I've had for five years when every single year they have the newer, better, bigger model of the thing that I want. And so all of a sudden, like, there's a relational component to – like there are certain people that I can't spend time with. Because all it, do, all, all it does is bring up all these things about me, all, the, all these insecurities that I have about myself. Because in my own, in my universe, I am on the throne. And then when someone displaces me from that throne by getting a new car or having something that I don't have, all of a sudden my identity is thrown into question. How many of us, our, our well-being and our, like, our, our self-esteem, like our vision of who we are comes down to do I have all the things that I want and is there somebody else who has more than I do? Because this is good news, by the way, and the reason this is good, so when, when the writer begins talking about the throne room in the center of the universe, and, like, this is actually really good news because it releases us from all the things that we can't control anyway. It releases us from having to, to feel like we have to continue one-upping everybody else. We spend a lot of time here talking about, like, grace, and what grace is fundamentally at its core is grace is the insistence that all of life is a gift. And that we are constantly receiving things that we don't necessarily deserve. And so what you find with the Nebuchadnezzar story and with the whole, like, I need it bigger, I need it bigger, I need it more, I need everything to be more and upgraded from what it was, like, six months ago. What that is, it is a lack of understanding of it's all a gift. Because if it's all a gift, then, like, I am not constantly terrorized by does somebody else have something that I don't. And so grace is the insistence that you have a life that, was a, that is a gift. And when you are able to live in a content, joyful, peaceful place within that life, you are, you are aware of the grace that you have received. And so to acknowledge I am not on the throne is essentially to acknowledge life is a gift, and I understand that I am not in the middle of the universe. So let's look at a couple of other images. So take a look at Mark chapter 10. In, um, in Mark 10, you have Jesus... Um, essentially interacting with with his followers and so in um in mark 10 beginning in verse 35 it says then james and john son of the sons of zebedee came to him came to jesus and said teacher they said we want you to do for us whatever we ask which is a weird thing to say just to somebody like at ever i think but and so in verse 36 it says what do you want me to do for you he asked they replied let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Now, when they say in your glory, they're actually in their minds. They believe that Jesus is going to eventually overthrow the Roman government, and so what they what they want is once Jesus takes the place of Caesar, they want to have like the closest proximity to power that they can. And so Jesus's response to this, so anyway, so Jesus's response to this is, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. In other words, you you have no idea what it is you're asking for. In fact... To, to understand the teachings of Jesus is to understand that a lot of this is about, like, self-emptying and surrender. And so to ask for more power, essentially, is a way of saying, like, I don't get any of this at all. And so this is uh, one of the first instances of people calling spiritual shotgun, I guess. And so, um, <laughs> thank you. I thought that was funny, too. I'm having, like, after that, that or, or, or initial joke, like, everything I say is, like, please be funny. So I'm having one of those Sundays. So... Um, so yeah so essentially the whole thing is there's a tension about do i rank properly and am i am i where i want to be in order to have the full advantage of whatever it is that i feel like i am owed and so you have here a very like deep dark sense of entitlement and one of the dominant messages going back to what we talked about a second ago, one of the dominant messages of the scripture is you've been given this gift called life and what you are called to do is live the life that you have been given and so the the constant anxiety over am I in, like, do I have what I am owed, like, totally flies in the face of all of life is a gift. And so let's look at one more, um, because this, by the way, does not stop at spirituality. I would argue that, like, in, in the realm of the spiritual, this, this gets even, like, more fuzzy and difficult than in any other place. So in, um, in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse, um, we'll just begin in verse 1, it says, um says be careful this is jesus speaking he's preaching a sermon he says be careful not to practice your your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them if you do you will have no reward from your father in heaven so here jesus is confronting like when you do something good why do you do it and and he begins to sort of deconstruct okay when when you begin to do the things that you view as like noble good holy sacred things Why are you doing those things? And he's not saying don't do them. He's saying be aware of why you do them. And so in verse 2, it says, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. By the way, notice he does not say if you give to the needy. He says when you give to the needy so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you, in verse five, it says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. What is their reward? He says they have already received their reward in full. What's the reward? If you, if you do something in order to gain attention from other people, what is, the, what is the reward you seek? The reward you seek is attention. And so Jesus is saying is like when, when somebody like goes out of their way to make sure everybody else knows how like spiritual they are and all they want is for people to notice that, then when people notice that, they got exactly what they wanted. And what Jesus is saying is, but that's all you get from that. Like, that, that is a hollow, shallow victory. And so, um, so he's calling out all of the motivations for, like, why do you do the things that you do in the name of, like, spirituality? And so in verse 16 jumping down he says when you fast do not do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting truly i tell you they have received their reward in full but when you fast put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen and then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you so if the reward for doing something just to be seen is is like being seen then what is the reward if if you do it like with this sort of holy pure motivation the reward is you did it and it it like had some sort of internal impact on you the reward is or the question becomes like are you doing this so that people will see it or are you doing it because there is some sort of internal thing that that sort of like nourishes and like breathes something holy into your soul because essentially jesus is saying whatever you go looking for you're going to find it if you want to have a spiritual experience that is all about having people notice you, you can, you can have that. People will notice you. He, but, but then he says, but if there is some sort of internal thing that wants to be a part of something bigger and more profound than that, then that is what you will participate in. And so, I, and, and he talks about like don't like pray or like announce your righteousness on street corners. I, I have a friend who uh, who pointed out very like, Directly, he. I heard him once say to somebody, he said, "You know, we don't have street corners anymore. We have Facebook." And so, like, if you've ever like seen someone on Facebook and they're like posting all sorts of like like super overly spiritual kinds of things, and there's a part of you that thinks like that seems like something that maybe didn't need to be seen by 800 people, um, then then maybe like that that thing inside maybe Jesus is thinking the same thing. Maybe the whole point of this is like, oh, if you were interested in having people notice that you, then well done because that's exactly what you got. However if there's some like deeper, more profound thing you're after, maybe the question of do people see this, maybe that isn't the first question that needs to be on our minds. In other words, there is a way of engaging like the spiritual, like the life of the spiritual being that actually moves us towards the like trying to sit in a chair that does not belong to us. So what Jesus does here is he's calling out all the ways that we we prop ourselves up with religion as a way of trying to make ourselves the center of, of this thing. So we we make a, a head fake towards like, humility and like holiness and loyalty but all it is it's the same thing it's all trying to like i'm trying to move myself towards the center of something i'm trying to sit in a chair that does not belong to me so the whole thing is about pride the whole thing this this idea of the throne room and the center of all things and do we understand our place in the created order the whole thing is about where do we belong like if we are in if we are engaging reality like, what is the center of that, and am I trying to sit somewhere that I don't belong? So – and this, by the way, this, this affects all sorts of things. Like, we, we could talk about, like, lots of different categories of life or in, in, in interaction. Um, we talked before a little bit about, like, entitlement and about the idea of, like, y- you might walk into a room and you might see, like, certain people have certain things that you feel like you are owed or should have been yours first or at the very least you should have gotten it too. And, um, and there, there's, like, this really dark sort of thing that wells up inside us because not only do we feel like something is missing, like, in our own lives, we become resentful of people who have those things. And so, like, the feeling of envy or entitlement, what it does is it robs us of the ability to, to engage life now. And so the question becomes, I think, for each of us, is there any way that I am that I, being robbed of my own joy because all i see are the things that i don't have and all i see are the ways that something someone else has something better or there's there's something that i am owed that i am not being given is there any way that i am not living the story that god has called me to live that i am not that i am not being true to reality because i am trying to claim things that do not belong to me and the good news here is, like, you don't have to live like that. That's a miserable, exhausting way to live. And the good news is, that's not. You, there's a better way of engaging all of reality. Um, we can talk about it in terms of like how we interact with other people. Have you ever had a disagreement with somebody or a, or a conflict? And sometimes, like, those conflicts come from a real place of like hurt or betrayal or um, or some sense of like someone wronged you. And there's there is a there's a hard like there's something that's difficult to get over in that but sometimes like we end up having conflict with somebody just because we're just we continue to try and move ourselves toward the center a lot of conflict comes from like two people who are trying to sit in the same chair and a lot of times it's like i wonder how many of our conflicts could be very easily resolved if each of us realized like oh i'm actually not the center of the universe and this this is actually not about me at all or um we can talk about how, how it affects us when we're talking about anxiety. I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm speaking from experience. Like, this is the thing I, I struggle with the most. And anxiety often is the internal need to resolve tension that I don't have the power to resolve. It's the, it's the need to control things that I do not have control over. So, like, if there are people in your life who, like, have a negative opinion of you and you've tried everything you can and, like, whatever it is, like, no matter what you do, you can't fix that. Like, you can't, you cannot go into somebody's head and change... You can't rewire somebody's, like, brain. And so, like, you have no control over that. And yet you lose so much sleep over that, right? And so there, there, a lack of peace is, like, I'm, I am trying to find a way to control something that I have no power to control. Or a, a lot of times there are may, maybe you're trying to change somebody's mind about a point of view that they have and no matter how loud you yell and no matter how many things you share on their facebook wall they are not hearing it and so and, and so you get matter and matter and matter what is that you're trying you're trying to control something you can't control you're you're trying to sit in a chair that doesn't belong to you and so quite often our anxiety comes from a need to control something that we have no power to control and again this is good news because you can't control it so you don't have to waste all of your energy and your time trying to control it this is again it's good news it's good news because like you don't have to live like this you can let go and you can surrender all the things that you couldn't control before anyway one, one of the things that we that worship i think points us towards is like maybe some of us we just need to identify all the things that we can't control and acknowledge that we can't control them because you the there is a throne at the center of the universe and caesar doesn't sit there but neither do you And there's so much that you cannot control and you don't have to waste your energy and your life and your time trying to control things that you cannot. And then uh, we can talk about lots of different areas. The last one I would point us toward is uh, like the area of justice so like there there's a way of interacting like if you hear of suffering or or someone saying like there's a group of people who are being marginalized and harmed by by systems or by people or by organizations or by some other like entity that is way way more powerful than they are one response to that is that's terrible what can we do and another response to that is that's not my problem or a subset of that is that doesn't actually exist because i don't see it and it's never happened to me does anybody know what I'm talking about? So, like, there, there is a way of interacting with people who suffer that minimizes their suffering. Because if, it, if I'm not the one suffering, then it doesn't affect me because I, I am trying to sit, I'm sitting in a chair that doesn't belong to me. If I am the center of the universe, then any suffering that doesn't directly affect me has no bearing on, on anything. However, if I believe that at the center of the universe there sits a God, who cares about the suffering of the poor and the weak and the oppressed if you believe that there is a god at the center of the universe who is interested in love and grace and justice then any suffering anywhere should bother you because that because any suffering anywhere affects is, is essentially a way of saying like something is wrong within the created order because because the center the one who sits on the throne at the center of the universe is deeply interested in the well-being of the marginalized and the oppressed. So to place myself on the throne is essentially trying to force myself to be unaware of all the things that I need to be aware of. So in what ways have we been trying to sit in a chair that does not belong to us? In what ways do we need to acknowledge I am not the center of the universe? In what ways do I need to surrender my control and, and make room for something more holy and sacred than that? So we're going to take communion. If you don't want to take communion, that's totally okay, but you are welcome to if you want to because one of the things that communion does is it reminds us that we all gather around the same table and that we are all invited into the same invitation of hope and grace and love. And so to take communion is to acknowledge that I do not sit at the center of the universe. So may you be set free from all the things that you've been trying to control and you can't. And may you be awakened to all of all of the things that that remind us that we we serve a God of love and hope and justice. And may we be set free from all of the entitlements and all of the ways that we feel like our lives are less because there is something that we don't have. May we find that all of life is a gift, and may we celebrate that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for reminding us that we do not sit on the throne at the center of the universe. We, we thank you that we are invited to participate in something way, way bigger, that we are invited to take our place among the created order and to participate in this larger, more beautiful story. And for those of us who are tormented by the need to always make something bigger or better or more, may we be set free from that. And for those of us who have numbed ourselves to the suffering of others, may we be woken up. And for those of us who are in the midst of a conflict with another person and all it would take to solve the conflict is for someone to stop sitting in a chair that doesn't belong to them and for those of us who feel deep anxiety over all the things that we cannot control we pray for an awareness of who we are and where we belong within this larger story and may we be set free from all the things that we cannot control And may we be empowered to do all the things that we are empowered to do. As we gather together around the table, as we take the body and the blood, the bread and the cup, may we remember that there is a throne at the center of the universe. And the one who sits there offers grace and peace and hope and love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.